Have you ever been so angry that you absolutely lost it? No, this has nothing to do with yesterday's football game. Don't worry about that. Um, There are some events that you never forget because the emotion of the moment and the adrenaline that is pouring through you at the time burns it into your memory. And you'll remember it forever. I can still... um, I can still smell the smells, I can still hear the noises, I can still feel the emotions. It's 1979, and I'm doing what I always do in those days, and that is play basketball. And I'm on the basketball court, and I'm just having my basketball game, it's PE class at school. I remember it so well, I steal a pass, I head in for the layup, as I go up for the layup, I feel two hands in the small of my back shoving me into the pole that is holding up the basket. I get up and I am mad. And I see this guy who took a cheap shot at me and I say something to him and he says something to me and he starts to walk toward me And I remember um, making a mockery of it. I looked to one of his friends. I said, you better get him out of here before he gets hurt. And when I turned my head back, his punch just caught my chin. I mean, just grazed the hair on my chin. But that was all it took. There was something that snapped in me in that moment. I... uh, You may or may not know this, but there's a right way and a wrong way to throw a punch. You know, it it has less to do with what you do with your hands and a lot more to do with what you do with your feet, your legs, and your hips. And if you know how to throw a punch correctly and you get your foot at the right angle and you drive your hips, there's a lot of power in that punch. And you're taught not to punch someone, but to punch through someone. And he came at me as I pivoted and threw a punch. And he was unconscious before he hit the ground. You could tell he was unconscious before he hit the ground because he fell directly backward. He didn't put his hands down. He didn't make any attempt to turn. He just fell down onto the concrete and he was out cold. And I jumped on him. And I pinned his arms below my legs and I began to punch him, even though he was unconscious. I don't know how many times I hit him, but I know I hit him as hard as I could every time. And I know that I watched and experienced it. And and to this day, as I tell you this story, my stomach begins to, to tighten because I can see what was happening to his face. I broke my hand on the second punch and his face was completely caved in by the time the teacher came and tackled me and pulled me off of him. And and I, I tell you with absolute sincerity that if that teacher had not pulled me off, I would still be there hitting him today. There was nothing that was going to stop Because my anger had taken control of me. 
and there was an ambulance called and he was carted off to a hospital and there was a serious question as to whether he would live through the day. And I went off to the doctor and got my hand x-rayed and got a cast and did all of that kind of stuff and went home and began to weep. And I wept for the rest of the night. And I called out in case there might be a God. God, if you're up there, if there really is a God, you've got to help me. Because I didn't know whether I was going to be going to prison if he died. And I was not as scared about that as I was scared about the experience I had of having anger completely control me and not being able to stop myself. And I knew I was desperately in need of help. That's part of my anger story. I wonder what your anger story is like. I want to tell you about somebody else's anger story because it's better to think of somebody else than our issues, isn't it? This guy is arguably the greatest leader his nation has ever seen. Not arguably, uh, indisputably. The greatest leader his nation has ever seen. Arguably the greatest leader of all time anywhere at any time. He led two million people out of slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness for 40 years all the way to the promised land. He, he was responsible for basically single-handedly setting up a new nation. He, he created the leadership structure and the political structure for his nation. He, he wrote the civil laws and the justice system. He designed the religious system and how the worship would work in that nation. He had face-to-face -face conversations with God. He was a great military leader. He was a great philosopher. He was a great priest. He was a great prophet. He goes down in history, and if you were to ask anybody today, however religious or irreligious they might be, and you were to say, hey, can you name somebody from like the Bible? Can you name somebody from the Old Testament? Just about everybody would know the name of Moses. The greatest leader, perhaps, that the world has ever seen but despite all of that, his story doesn't end on a high note. In fact, because of one fatal flaw in his character, he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the, the uh, heroes are displayed warts and all. We, we get to see that these are not superheroes. These are not impenetrable people. These are struggling people just like you and me. And we read about somebody like Moses and we watch him trip and we watch him stumble. We read about David and we see how he stumbles and how he trips and, and, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and right down the list and you go, wow, these are real people. I wonder what a real God could do in the lives of real people like me and we see it in the scripture. We get to see Moses warts and all. You see, it turns out that despite all of his strengths, Moses had a fatal flaw. He was a serious hothead. He couldn't control his temper. More than once, he lacked the self-control that it takes to keep things in hand 
and he flew off the handle and reacted in a way that caused damage. And ultimately, that's what kept him from experiencing his life's dream of the promised land. So yeah, Moses is kind of a superhero, but even Superman had kryptonite. Moses, his kryptonite was called anger. And it didn't just happen once or twice. You read through the story of Moses, you see it begins with anger. There's anger in the middle and it's anger at the end. There's anger all throughout. He never seems to actually get a grip on his anger. So let's just do a quick survey of Moses' life. We won't even look this up. I'll just tell you the story. If you don't believe me, go home and read your own Bibles. But it's in there. Um, It had always been God's plan to use Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, right? And God had him right where he needed him to be. God pulled a bunch of miraculous strings in order to see to it that Moses would be adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace. He had the best education. He had the best training. He had all of the experience. The Bible doesn't talk about this, but when you read extra biblical history, you see that Moses was a military leader while he was yet in Egypt, and he was the leader of several of Egypt's great battles in which they um, continued to strengthen their empire. He was the rising star in all of Egypt. He had the best education, the best resources, the best training, the best experience, the best of everything. It kind of makes you wonder what would have happened If Moses could have just stayed where he was, how much easier might it have been to move God's people out of Egypt? But as you probably know, there came a moment when he saw an injustice taking place. One of the Hebrew slaves was being beaten and treated badly and he lost his temper. He jumped in, he grabbed the guy who was uh, beating the slave and he killed the guy and hit his body. And he said, well, nobody will ever know. But then he realized people knew. And that was the end of his days in Egypt. Moses then has to take off and he has to run for his life. He doesn't get to say his goodbyes. He doesn't get to pack his bags. He just takes off and he heads into the desert, in the wilderness. He's 40 years old at this time. This is the point in life when leaders reach the point of their, mass, their, their best impact. And at the age of 40, he leaves all of his leadership opportunity behind and he goes into the desert where for the next 40 years, he will not lead people, he will lead sheep. And that happens for 40 years. He killed an Egyptian because the Egyptian was abusing a Hebrew slave. Now, was his anger reasonable? Yes, Is his anger justifiable? Yes. Is it understandable that when he sees this great injustice taking place that he moves to do something about it? Yes, all of that's true. His anger is justifiable, but that doesn't mean his behavior is justifiable. What he did as a result of his anger is not justifiable, and we'll talk more about that later. For now, let's just remember that Moses had to flee for his life. No time to make plans, no time to do anything. He just had to run. And that led to a 40-year interruption in what might have been a very different story if not for Moses' 
angry outburst. And as you probably know, Moses was in the wilderness from about age 40 to age 80. And those are probably his most impactful potential years as a leader. And they're flushed down the toilet while he leads sheep instead of people. And after 40 years with sheep, the burning bush incident takes place. And God calls Moses and says, I have a plan for you, tells him all about that plan. And he has this sort of face-to-face, if you will, meeting with God in a bush. And, and God um, gives him an assignment. And you would, he's 80 years old now. Now, you would think by now he's mellowed out. 40 years with sheep, you should be pretty calm. Life should be pretty easy. You would think he would be mellowed out by now. Um, He must have learned that you don't have to act on every impulse that comes into your mind, right? This is something we try to teach to our four-year-olds. You would think that by the age of 80, he would have that. Um, And sure enough, God's not finished with him yet. And so he calls him and he says, I have this great plan for you, which you know all about. And he empowers him and he sends him back to Egypt to lead the people to freedom. There's going to be 10 plagues. There's going to be multiple meetings with Pharaoh and the upper crust of the Egyptian leadership. There's going to be a bunch of miracles that take place at the hand of Moses and Aaron. And finally, Pharaoh relents Let's God's people go. And Moses leads them out of Egypt, as you well know. There's another miracle that takes place at the Red Sea. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. And now all of the people know that this is God's man. Everybody knows this is a guy we can trust. Everybody knows this is a guy we can follow. They're going to follow him anywhere. But as you know, once they get out of the wilderness, the grumbling begins. Nobody seems to be happy. Everybody's got questions. Nobody's got answers. And finally, while they're in the wilderness, God calls Moses up to the mountain where he meets with God, and God gives him what are undoubtedly the two most valuable tablets in the history of the world, right? And he gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, written with God's own finger and carved into stone tablets. Moses comes down the mountain with the law, which is designed to help the people of God succeed in everything that they do. And he comes down the mountain with the law, the tablets in his hand. And what does he find? He finds the people gathered around a golden calf, bowing down and worshiping at the altar of a golden calf. And the vein on his forehead (laughs) pops out and he takes the tablets of God and smashes them into a million pieces. I wonder what those would go for at auction today if he hadn't done that. It's rage. People are worshiping a golden calf. The rage takes over. He throws a temper tantrum. In his anger, he takes the tablets and crushes them, shatters them into a million pieces. And this will not be the last time we see Moses throw a hissy fit. It's an angry outburst. And this is what he does. After a long while in the wilderness, the people are ungrateful. And Moses turns his anger toward God. 
He is sick and tired of traveling with this group of whining people. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? He's touching me. He's touching me. Are we there yet? And he is sick of this. And he's doing the don't make me come back there thing. Don't think I won't pull this thing over thing. And he has absolutely had it. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 11. He gets alone with God. And again, the vein in his forehead is popping out. And he has had enough of these stinking people. And he yells at God. He gets alone with God for a time of prayer. And he basically says, you know what? These are not my people. These are your stupid people. And I don't, I never asked for this job. I was good with sheep. I really was. I never wanted to be with these people. And you know what? They whine. Oh, they whine. I give them, they get manna every day from heaven. And they're like, we're tired of manna. I mean, what, and then, and then you send meat, right? And now they're tired of meat. And now they're complaining because they want water. Like, water is so important. I am so sick of these people. They are not my children. They're your children. Why do I have to be responsible for them? Why do I have to put up with this? All of this whining and complaining, I've absolutely had it, God. In fact, do me a favor, God. Kill me right now. Seriously, just kill me now. You think I'm making this up? It's Numbers chapter 11. Read it at home. He stands at the mountain, shakes his fist at God, and goes, what kind of God are you? Kill me now. Show me your strength. Show me your power. I am so done with these people. And God says, "Uh, calm down. You might want to remember who you're speaking to. And I'll take care of this. And he intervenes. He provides some meat. gets them through this little crisis. But it's not going to be the last time Moses throws a fit. As the book of Numbers continues. And by the way, Moses wrote the book. So he's telling us all this story about himself. Um, There's this tragedy. Now they've been in the wilderness a long time now. Decades. And Moses' sister, Miriam, who is the mother figure in his life, dies in the wilderness. And Moses' heart is broken. His brother Aaron and his heart is broken. They're mourning and weeping over the loss of their sister. And while Moses and Aaron are mourning, the people begin to grumble again. This time it's about water. There's not enough water. How are we going to get enough water to drink? We don't see any water for a long ways. We're all going to die out here. Why'd you bring us out here to die? We could have just died in Egypt in our beds at home. It would have been fine. But no, no, you bring us out here. Now there's no water. How are we going to get water? And the people are grumbling and they're getting scared because now Miriam's dying. People are dying one by one. We're talking about millions of people. You realize that whole generation died in the wilderness, right? And I want you to turn to Numbers. It's, it's in your uh, Old Testament. And uh, it's, the, it's the fourth book of the Old Testament. And I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 20. And join me in Numbers chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And let, let's just look at this together. Um, 
Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. It's a mob. It's a, it's a pitchforks and torches. They come for Aaron and they come for Moses. And it says in verse 3, the people thus contended with Moses and spoke saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Just imagine how frustrated Moses is in this moment. He's mourning the loss of his sister. And the mob shows up banging on his door. Hey, we want a word with you. He's just trying to mourn and the grumbling just gets overwhelming. So what does he do? He goes back to God for answers. Look at verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway, the tent of meeting, and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Now, if I had time, I would do a two-week seminar on verse 8. Verse 8 is filled with significance. Who is the rock in Scripture? Jesus. He is the one through whom the living water flows, right? So this is a picture of what is coming. I can provide for people what they cannot provide for themselves. I can provide physical nourishment and I can provide spiritual nourishment and I will do that through a Messiah. And so he has a plan to show this to the people, to give them a glimpse of what his plan is for them. And so he says, here's what I want you to do. Gather the people by this big rock and take the rod, which is the symbol of God's authority, and speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock in my name, it will do what I tell it to do, and water will shoot out from the rock, and everybody will get water, and everyone will know that they can trust me because I'm God, and I'm always going to take care of them. That's the plan. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. So far, so good. He seems to be controlling his temper. He's not freaking out. But the story doesn't end here. What did God tell Moses to do? Speak to the rock. It's very simple. It's not a complex order. I want you to go speak to the rock. Tell the rock to give water. That's what he told him. But once again, Moses' anger gets the best of him. And if you want to picture what this looks like, remember, Moses now is over 100. Have you ever seen an episode, either in the movie theater or on TV, of The Incredible Hulk? There's always that moment in every episode where David Banner begins to get angry. 
and you go, "Uh uh-oh, it's coming. That's what's happening right here. Picture this old dude. The way you picture Moses in your mind is right. He's 100, he's 110, he's 115. He's right around that age. He walks with a walking stick. His beard is down to his knees. He is an old man. He moves slowly. He talks quietly. And he takes the rod and the vein in his forehead begins to be prominent again. And he lets go. Look at verse Nine. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? <clears throat> now again, I don't have time to tear this apart. But do you notice what's going on here? Shall we bring water for you from this rock? What was God's point? God's point was to show how strong God is. And Moses says, listen here, you rebels. Shall I once again show you how great I am? And shall I take care of your thirst? And it doesn't stop there. Moses lifted up his hand with the rod in it and struck the rock twice. And it doesn't tell us how much time between the two shots. But I picture him taking this stick and turning around. Whack! (sighs) No water. Surprise, surprise. He didn't do what God told him to do. He made it all about himself. And the vein gets more prominent in his forehead. Whack! Water starts pouring out everywhere. Moses like, like those stupid guys in the red uniforms and their white horse riding around celebrating. He made it about himself, didn't he? He let his emotions understandable emotions. He's grieving. He's had it with these people. They're suffering. But he lets his emotions dictate his behavior. He showed them real anger, man's anger, not God's anger. And man, I bet it felt good to blow off some steam. I I wonder about the unrecorded parts, because remember Moses wrote this. I wonder about the unrecorded parts. I, I wonder about God saying, uh, feel better there, bucko? Feel better now that you had your little tantrum? Are you done laying on the ground, kicking and screaming? It must have felt better for about 10 seconds. And then God spoke. Look at verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. 
God said, listen, all this was about was me showing my greatness. And you made it about you and your anger and the people. On the next page, Aaron dies. And just a little while later, after 80 years in the wilderness, before they ever set foot in the promised land, Moses dies too. It's a tragic ending to the biography of Israel's greatest leader. And it all comes down to one repeated character flaw. This is a man who too often was controlled by his anger. And by the way, if you're sitting here today and going, you know what, I don't really, I'm not really angry. I don't throw a lot of fits. I'm not kind of a scream and yell. I don't ever punch anybody. Just replace it with your own emotional outburst. Maybe for you, it's about fear. Maybe for, for you, it's about um, anxiety. Maybe for you, it's about doubt. I don't know what it is for you, but whenever we allow our emotions to begin to be our Lord, we have a real problem. I have a saying that I love to say, and that is this, emotions are wonderful, they're a gift from God, they make a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. If you're a Christian, you have one Lord, his name is Jesus Christ. You have been bought with a price, you are not your own. But when our emotions come in in such a way that they're so profound that they insist on taking over the control of our lives in that moment, your emotion is acting as Lord and you're bowing down to a false God. The Bible calls that idolatry. Emotions, it's a powerful thing. See, there's a level of wisdom that helps you to answer tough questions, figure out uh, difficult problems, but there's a whole different kind of wisdom that enables you to do what's best even when your emotions are maxed out. And just ask yourself this, the biggest mistakes you've made in your life, were they not mostly made in the midst of extreme emotions? When we allow our emotions to take over, that's when we're in trouble. It's the inability to handle our emotions that often has the greatest consequences. Jails are filled with people who are basically decent folks who had one experience where their emotions took over and they'll be suffering for it from now on. Replace jails with divorce courts, same thing. Hospital emergency rooms, same thing. Anger is a dangerous emotion. Now with all of that as our foundation, I want us to go to the New Testament book of Ephesians. So flip over in your Bibles to your New Testament, find the book of Ephesians, go to Ephesians chapter four, and I'm gonna show you something that I think you may find genuinely surprising right here from your Bible. Ephesians chapter four, you get into the letters of Paul near the back of your Bible. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, then Philippians. Go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. And by the way, this is quoting from the book of Psalms. And here's what it says. Be angry 
and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In the Greek, that's a command. God commands you to be angry. Did you know that? We, we have this thought that, well, anger is bad. We're not supposed to be angry. We got to put off anger. But, but the Bible commands us, be angry. And if there was a period right there, I would win an award. But it says, be angry and yet do not sin. God says, I'm not telling you not to have emotions. I'm telling you not to let your emotions lead to sin. You have choices about sin. You don't always have choices about your emotions. Do not allow your emotions to lead to sin. Be angry. God commands you to be angry. The anger of Moses in most of these cases, completely understandable. The behavior of the people made anger a reasonable emotion to experience at that time. It wasn't the anger that got Moses in trouble. It was Moses' sinful response to the anger. Anger is a perfectly appropriate emotion. And, and you have to have anger if you're going to have love. If you truly love someone, then whatever or whoever attacks or hurts or diminishes that person, that stirs up anger in you. That's a natural part of love. Anger is appropriate. But again, I say to you, Christian, you have one Lord and your Lord is not your emotions. Jesus Christ is your Lord. And when you allow anger or any other emotion to rise to the level of sitting on the throne in your life and telling you what to do, then you're sinning. The Bible says, be angry. You better be angry. You better be angry about human trafficking. You better be angry about child abuse. You know, there's, there's so many things that we ought to be angry about. The Bible says to be angry. You know what? Jesus is angry multiple times in the gospel accounts. We see it again and again. Two most obvious examples are not once but twice in two different times in two different years. He goes into the temple courtyard, turns over the tables. One of the times it says he makes a whip and goes chasing people out of there with a whip. Now what do you call that? I call it angry. Jesus experienced anger multiple times in the gospel accounts. And yet we know this, Jesus never sinned. Anger is not sin. In fact, I have a book on my shelves. Uh, It's written actually by a friend of mine, Dr. Sarah Sumner, and it's called Angry Like Jesus. And it's an entire book dedicated to the study of Jesus's anger and how he dealt with his anger to glorify God rather than to serve himself. It's interesting So Jesus was angry, but he never sinned. Anger is necessary for anybody who's going to love. The question is not whether you should be angry. The question is whether you should be ruled by your anger. Let's read that verse again. Be angry and yet do not sin. 
And Proverbs is filled with warnings. I couldn't continue this wisdom series without taking you to Proverbs. So go to Proverbs real quick. And you guys are not listening fast enough, so I'm going to hurry. Proverbs chapter 12, okay? Go to Proverbs chapter 12 with me and look at verse 14 of Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs 12, 14 to 16. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of man's hands will return to him. The way of a fool is right in his eyes. I'm, I'm reading the wrong spot. Uh, verse, verse 16, sorry. A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. They both feel anger, but the fool says, let me show you my anger. And the prudent man conceals the dishonor that his anger might bring otherwise. Verse 17, he who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceit. We saw that last week. Verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Go over to chapter 15 of Proverbs and join me in chapter 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Anger can be a very dangerous weapon if we let it control us. But if we control it, it can be a very powerful tool. Now I'm gonna take you back to the New Testament and we're gonna go again to the book of James right after Hebrews. And I want you to go to James chapter one with me. <clears throat> and we'll close with this. James chapter one, verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's what we just saw back in the book of Numbers. It's Moses' anger and it's God's reputation that is not shown. Quick to hear. Let everyone be quick to hear. You know what, guys? Sometimes, if we would just shut up and listen, it would take care of everything. If we just take a second and listen. But when you're angry, do you want to listen? <laughs> Let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak, says James. Quick to hear Slow to speak. And so if you haven't taken any notes at all, I'm gonna give you this one thing to write down, okay? Write this down. This is important. This is advice for when you feel anger. You ready? Write this word down. Shh. When you feel anger, bring the volume down. When you feel anger, stop before you speak. What if you were to ask yourself, what is the potential of the words that are about to come out of my mouth? Everyone, quick to hear, slow to speak. Listen, guys, all due respect, you don't have to say every thought that comes into your mouth. <laughs> the filter needs to be in the brain, not out here somewhere. You don't have to say every thought that comes to mind. You don't always have to have the last word. You don't always have to 
respond right away. You don't always have to get credit for being right. How about you just let the other person be stupid and you go off and have a good day? (laughs) Guys, this is just a matter of self-control. And and I have more verses here, but I don't have time for those. Let me just wrap it up this way. In the book of Galatians, it gives us a list of what it calls the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm always so interested that self-control is listed as what happens when the Holy Spirit is in control. When the Holy Spirit is in control, when my life is submitted fully to God and the Holy Spirit is in control, guess what? I have the ability to control myself. And I'm saying this with all sincerity. I started this message by telling you about my angry outbursts. You know that from, the, from the, my earliest memory until the time that I received Jesus Christ at the age of 14, I was angry 100% of the time. There had been some pain in my childhood. There had been some issues that I've had to work out with counselors and God and all that kind of stuff that caused me to be somebody who lived in a perpetual state of anger. What I did to that kid is indefensible. There's absolutely no excuse for that, but I'm telling you, that happened because my anger was my Lord then. I don't know what you deal with, but God has come to be your Lord. Jesus came to set the captives free. And so if, the, if your emotions, your, your, your sadness your happiness, your, your manic states, your depressed states, your, your anger, your fear, your anxiety, your distrust, if any of those kinds of things have been a taskmaster to you, just cracking the whip and telling you what to do, I have great news. Jesus came to set you free. You don't have to live like that. There is a God who wants to be your Lord, not just your Savior. And when we will allow ourselves to submit to the Holy Spirit, he gives us something called supernatural self-control. We still have to control ourselves, but now we can. And some of us are so used to being angry, so used to being controlled by our emotions, It's hard for us to believe it could ever be a different way. Jesus came to set you free. At the age of 14, I knelt alone under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I lifted my hands and I said, Jesus, take me. I'm yours. And when I stood up, my immediate first thought was, I'm not angry. I didn't even know I was angry until that very second. And I don't know why. I don't know why he did it. 
Maybe like taking water out of the rock. He was just trying to show me who he is. But he took away my overwhelming anger instantaneously the moment I gave my life to Jesus. It changed everything for me. I have never been the same person since. And I told you last week, it took me years to clean up my language. And there's other parts I still haven't cleaned up. I'm still a mess in a whole bunch of ways. And God's like, seriously, Doug? How old are you gonna be before you get this right? And he's working on me and working on me and working on me. But I'm telling you, anger has not been my Lord since that day. You don't have to be a slave to your emotions. And if Moses' life teaches us anything, it's that it's worth it to let God be the Lord of your life. I wonder what we've missed. Let's not miss it anymore. Let's stand together and let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is such an incredible blessing to be invited into your loving arms, to experience your comfort, your peace, your grace, your hope, all the things that we do not have apart from you. And God, so many of us for so long have been fooled in so many ways, and the enemy has been messing with us and playing with us and getting us to believe that our emotions get to be in charge. But I just want to say hallelujah, glory to God. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords and everyone has to answer to you. And so, Father, we choose to answer to you and not to our emotions. Let us be people who walk in genuine wisdom, not controlled by our emotional outbursts, but controlled by the love and grace and wisdom of God. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.